PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites. Archive, distribute, and display your photos in a flash-free, responsive website. Try one for free for 14 days at PhotoShelter.com. Get our latest educational guides for free. PhotoShelter.com slash resources. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Alan Murabayashi broadcasting live from New York, the world headquarters of PhotoShelter. You are listening to I Love Photography. You might be joining us by going to YouTube slash PhotoShelter and watching all the live video. Or you might be listening to the podcast, which you downloaded by going to iTunes and searching for I Love Photography. Of course, we always we love the reviews. Love them. I love getting five stars or one star or whatever. We love we love the interaction. It's all about engagement. As usual, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Sarah Jacobs. Hey, Alan. How you doing? I'm doing well. You know, last week we talked about this Instagram for doctors called Figure One. Gnarly stuff. Remember that gnarly stuff? And after that show, I went to dinner with my friend who's a top plastic surgeon in uh, St. Louis. And I said, have you heard of this Figure One for doctors, Instagram for doctors? He goes, yeah, I, I, I have it. I, I took a look at it. I said, well, what do you think? And he goes, I'm very surprised at the number of doctors who post photos and then say, I don't know what to do. What should I do? Oh, no. This is not a good thing to hear. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it's not a good thing to hear. But then I also thought, because we looked at that photo of a stiletto, of a high-heeled stiletto shoved through someone's eyeball. Yeah. And I don't know that I would, even if you were trained, how would you know what to do? That seems pretty novel. Yeah, I don't think they teach a class in that specifically in med school. Well, he was not impressed by the reaction of the doctors, but he thought it was a, a fun app. Cool. Well, <laughs> I, I won't be downloading it anytime soon. Yeah, let's leave that to the pros. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about photography uh, this week as we do uh, always because this is a photography show. Uh, and the first thing we want to show you today is the 2015 Pulitzer Prizes were uh, awarded this past week. And... Uh, you know, they have a bunch of uh, photograph photography awards in those Pulitzers. And so we're psyched that a bunch of people won. A bunch of people that we know. Seattle Times, Marcus Yam and the crew. Well, he's, he's not at Seattle Times anymore, but they won breaking news reporting for uh, covering a landslide that happened. Um, Daniel Barahulak won for uh, feature photography. Some really, really great stuff uh, for Ebola. Which we talked about on the show. Which we talked about. And then we also talked about uh, the St. Louis uh, Dispatch, post-dispatch uh, that won the breaking news photography for the coverage of Ferguson. Now, Alan, if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure you called this back when we talked about it. Is that yeah, right? I don't want to brag and I don't want people <laughs> to think that I'm a psychic. But I did say that I thought that, that the, the, the stuff coming out of Ferguson was clearly Pulitzer Prize worthy. Now, whether or not they were going to win, but I said they should definitely be in contention. Yeah. I mean, you know, fast forward what, uh, I guess that was like August or September. Fast forward seven months. Look at, look at me. I should have like some sort of crystal ball or something. <laughs> yeah, you definitely called it. Well, it's not about me. It's about the winners. Great photography and congratulations to everyone who won. I mean... I, I, you just can't dispute these winners. These are just, this is like class act. These are very, very good photographs. That's what I'd like to say about that. Congratulations to everyone. Um, you know, we talked about Daniel's Ebola coverage and something happened on the 21st of this week, April 21st, 2015. 
And Google released a whole new uh, algorithm, a whole new index for mobile searches, which people were calling mobile mobile get on or something like that. <laughs> all those nerds. And so what it turns out to be is if your uh, website doesn't look good on uh, on a mobile phone, Google is going to uh, drop you in the rankings of the search because they want people who are searching from phones to have a good mobile experience. I think that's that makes sense. That's reasonable, right? Yeah, I'd say it's reasonable. So we wrote a little blog post on that. And you know, just because Daniel was in the news, I, I ran his website through Google's mobile-friendly test. And this is what happened. It says it's not mobile-friendly because the links are too close together. Now, you might think that that's a very trivial thing, but think about like how fat like your little fingers are on a tiny little screen when you're trying to uh, touch the different links. So this was actually not bad because I, I ran through some that had four or five red Xs through it problems with the website, like they just weren't mobile friendly at all. Um, and his only had one, which were links were too close together. So Daniel, make your website mobile friendly. Yeah. With but that, that's discrimination against people with big fingers. <laughs> that, that's a good point. Maybe Google should think about that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, photo shelter beam websites are mobile ready. So that's one way to rectify that problem. Yeah, that's another, yes. That's, a, that's another way to do it. Uh, and speaking of all of this search stuff, we have a webinar coming up hosted by, uh, who is this guy? He's got a funny name. Yeah, yours truly. Oh, it's me. <laughs> yeah, hosted by Alan. This is going to be on April 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Alan's going to go through eight great tips to boost your SEO. So sign up, tune in. And get started on that stuff, guys, because it's important. You know, I can I can distill it down into like one tip, <laughs> which, which is you well, gotta, don't give it away yet, Alan. Yeah, I was gonna say you gotta, and that's how you get better SEO. Oh, yeah, you're you right. Gotta, you're totally right. <laughs> that was that was a, a sound effect from my mouth. <laughs> hey, I went to the National Geographic Photographers Seminar. I want to say it was three years ago, might have been four. At that webinar, uh, a French artist named JR presented. And he presented a, a project. Well, he showed a bunch of things, but one of the projects he showed was he went down to the favelas in Rio de Janeiro and he took photos of uh, some of the residents there and then he printed them huge and put them on the sides of the houses in the favelas. And so from the mountaintops, you know, it's like super, super dense and they're all very colorful, but it's super dense. And from the side of the mountain, you could see these eyes of the people that he photographed. And it was huge, large scale art. And it was amazing. And he had all of these different examples of it. Well, JR was back in town and apparently like one of his big causes now uh, is immigration. So he took photos of immigrants who have been in the U.S. for one month. And he took photos of them walking. Uh, and this was for the New York Times Magazine, which is coming out this weekend. And uh, one of these photos, they blew up the photo super huge, like 100-something feet tall. It took they, 62 strips of paper. 62 strip of paper, strips of paper. And put, put it, pasted it to the ground in front of the Flatiron Building. And you are seeing it. And that's the cover of the New York Times Magazine this week. And I got to say, 
you know, I'm really, really inspired by the work that this guy is doing. And the reason why, it's not just because it's like he prints stuff out super huge. It's because he uses photography to empower people. He makes the littlest people in the world, the people living in the favelas, the people who are newly immigrated to the U.S., people that are largely invisible, he makes them feel good through photography and through these projects. That's amazing. It's you know, like inspiring, you know? Yeah, hats off to JR. This is an incredible cover. Um, the links that we're talking about today, all of the photos that we're looking at, you can find those on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. So look at the other images that he took. Um, it's a really, really neat project. And uh, he's, he's kind of mysterious and cool in that French way. You know, he's always wearing his shades and he's got the French accent. <laughs> he's very cool. <laughs> uh, we, we didn't talk about this last week, but it came out uh, almost two weeks ago. But it was another piece in the New York Times magazine about Sally Mann. And most, most fans of photography probably know Sally Mann, uh, mentioned in the same breath as people like Jock Sturgis. Um, and I, I guess the, the visceral reaction is, isn't that the lady who takes nude photos of kids? And the answer is, well, yeah, that's, that's partially true. But here is an interesting essay uh, by Sally Mann, about Sally Mann. Um, talking about how uh, another piece in the New York Times magazine back in the day kind of created all the notoriety for her. She was largely unknown until the New York Times magazine wrote kind of, I wouldn't say it's an expose, but kind of a criticism of, mm -hmm. uh, well, it's titled The Disturbing Photography of Sally Mann. Yeah. Yeah. The interviewer stayed out with her for three full days and she admits in this piece to being very, very open and candid with him. And at, and at the same time, a little naive at that time about how her work would be seen out in the world. She didn't anticipate this book, Immediate Family, to get so famous. But then when it, you know, when it graced the cover of the New York Times magazine, um, people went, people went crazy over it. And here she finally speaks out about her choices behind making the work and also about some of the creepy um, stalkers that she got, and and very strange fan mail. Fans are fans are weird people. Fans are really weird. She she mentions that she I think she got a cat, like a dead cat in the mail from from a quote unquote you know disturbed fan or you know whoever. So people are weird. It, you know I I found the interview to be really really interesting just to get the insight because she you know the thing with this photography. It, it, to me, like many things, the comments that people make give you a lot of insight as to where their head is. Mm -hmm. right? So you take a look at, at this picture here and you could, depending on your experiences and depending on, you know, if you have mental problems, you could see a lot of different things. I see like hair that kind of looks like the grass and like a lovely portrait. And some people might think, oh, I'm a pedophile and I see like a naked child on the ground. Um, and so it was just interesting to see all of that stuff. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, I was watching um, uh, an interview yesterday of Robert Downey Jr. He was being interviewed for the new Avengers movie by this British guy on Channel 4. And the British guy at some point stopped asking about the movie because all of these interviews are commercials for the movie and everybody understands that. But he's incarcerated and after he got out of jail and Robert Downey Jr. walked out. And this reporter also did the same thing to uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, asking him about violence and what does he think about the violences in his film. And Quentin Tarantino like shut him down. 
And when I was reading the Sally Mann stuff, I thought, what is the artist's responsibility to explain where they're coming from? And the, the conclusion that I came with is they have none. The artist owes us nothing beyond the art that they created. So all of this stuff of like, where are you a pedophile? What's your problem? Like all this kind of stuff. It's like, that's, that's actually a reflection of your problem, not the artist's problem. But that said, you know, Western culture, it kind of, it kind of inculcates us to think this is not, we are not supposed to be looking at this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's just weird, you know, it makes, it makes me uncomfortable, even though I think the photos are beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing she talks about in this article that I really feel strongly that she unfortunately had to defend is her motherhood, because that came into question simply because she is a woman and a mom, and yeah. yes, documenting her own children, but, you know, people claiming she's a bad mother, and just all the stigma that comes with that, and even in the article, she says, you know, I, I went to all my children's recitals. I went to their practices. I picked them up from school. Even her just feeling like she needs to say that made me kind of sad because it, it's like, wow, she really feels like she had to defend herself on her motherhood in that way. And just how women have to respond to that kind of critique on the daily. It, it, that really touched me, that part. And, and this is a photo of her then six-year-old daughter, Virginia, on the 1990 cover of Aperture, which was then uh, put into an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal. They took the photo of her nude six-year-old daughter and then put black bars over the eyes of the child, the, the nipples of the child, and the genitalia of the child, and wrote a scathing article about, you know, you shouldn't fund the arts and all this kind of stuff. And Sally Mann said... Uh, here was a child who was so carefree and didn't think about her body and stuff. She was just kind of a child in nature. And then this effectively body shamed her yeah, um, and really made her upset. And she started wearing, uh, what did it say, like a swimsuit, shorts yeah. and shirt in the bathtub because she felt so ashamed. It's it's so weird, man. Yeah, it is. Because the, the censored image looks way more strange yeah. and, and wrong. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the one thing that I thought was really interesting about the piece and the layout is that all of the photos of her are actually videos. Oh, I love that. Lovely, like black and white. Her husband has muscular dystrophy. Um, she's cutting his hair in this short video. It's just a really, really great article. And anyone who loves photography needs to kind of read this and share your opinions. I mean, I don't think we're necessarily right. Uh, it's a very controversial topic, but you can't doubt, like, she's a very, very talented photographer. Mm -hmm. The question, I guess, would be, devoid of the controversy, would she be as well-known as an artist? Right. And the answer is probably no. Yeah, probably no. Strange. This photographer spent 33 years capturing the subtle changes in her small New England town. Uh, Barb Peacock is the artist. And instead of going to faraway lands um, or the big cities or places she wasn't familiar with, she camped out, uh, shot a lot of film during these 33 years, and took some really, really gorgeous photos of small town life. And you look at like this photo here, and she explained that she went to this little deli, and she saw these kids hanging out one day, and then she came back the next day, and they were still hanging out there. That was kind of like their spot. <laughs> And so she took this photo and it's just, it's 
fantastic. Yeah, I, I thought this was interesting how she she mentions that over time her images became more interesting to people. You know, at first they're like, oh yeah, that's just, you know, that's just me at my dinner party or whatever. But then, you know, this idea of nostalgia and the picture be being older. And she also changed the type of cameras she used. So she went from like the four by five to 35 millimeter and then she started shooting in digital. So in a way the work also progresses as the time progresses too. Um, that's great. super meta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Subtle changes from her film to digital days. Yeah, I don't know. I think that the it, it, all of the small town photography—it's just really, I don't know. I it, I feel like it's extra nostalgic in some in some ways because I think small towns are obviously changing. Uh, so when we look at that as a as a uh, meme of American life and and maybe even in the world, all these small towns, people are migrating to the cities. Um, and a lot of what makes small town special are, are being lost. And so we have these photos. Cool stuff. There was a very interesting auction that went on. We have talked about uh, Japanese internment before. Ansel Adams shot photos of it. And there were a few Japanese um, Americans who in the camps were taking photos. Here was a collection of not only photography, but also handmade crafts that went up for auction. And uh, nobody really knew who was selling them, but there was a huge outcry from the Japanese American uh, uh, community, um, many of whom had relatives who were in the internment camps during World War II. Um, and so it turns out that there was a guy uh, who was collecting this stuff in part to expose the atrocity of the internment camp. And that guy somehow willed this stuff to another family. And this family, after having stored in, uh, in their attic or whatever for many, many years, decided that they were going to divest this stuff. And they were counseled to throw it on auction um, and didn't realize what a ruckus it would create. And... You know, initially you're like, okay, but what's the big deal? You know, it's going to go up for auction. And then you read some of these stories. For example, this one. This is Yoshinori Himmel and his wife, Barbara Takei. And they found an image of his mom being put up for auction. Unclear whether he had seen it before, but can you imagine? Like a photo of your mom from internment camp is being sold at auction for like a hundred bucks. And you're like, what the heck is going on here? Well, in the end, uh, after talking to some museums and advisors and whatnot, the, uh, the family that owned this stuff decided that they are going to um, uh, sell it to a single uh, museum, single collection, so that it can be preserved in, as an intact collection, which I think is the right thing to do. I think, you know, the guy just needed some money. He had this great collection of stuff. His family needed some money. He said, okay, well, you know, I'm not trying to be nefarious about it. I just want to get the, uh, a fair price for it. So I, you know, as a Japanese American, I didn't, I didn't have any relatives who were in internment camps because we are from Hawaii, but, but I feel for these people. And clearly that's kind of a, it's a black eye on American history, like many things in our history. Um, internment camps, not a good thing. But I also feel for this guy. It's a complicated situation. Yeah, I think it being sold as one collection and to a museum is probably the, the most PC and best thing for it yeah, to Yeah, it's happen. the best outcome, surely, yeah. surely. Yeah. Um, but, but interesting. 
on io9.com, which is part of the Gawker network of stuff. I don't, I don't even understand <laughs> what that Gawker network is because they have Kinja. I don't really know what Kinja is. <laughs> they have everything. Yeah, it's so <laughs> weird. You know, there's like all of these weird aggregations of stuff. Well, this is called True Crime. It's a, it's a sub something of io9.com, which is a lot of like sci-fi sci stuff. And it's a Vimeo uh, film, six minutes long, about a forensic photographer in the UK. And it's really cool. And the dude, dude is like so old school. Mm. But he knows how to bring out like fingerprints. And there was a quote that I, that I tweeted out last week when I was watching it and it was something like, you know, everyone can go out and buy a camera, DSLR point and shoot. That doesn't make them a photographer. It just makes them a, a person with a camera. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, this guy definitely has a little bit of a dark side. I feel like you have to, to be a forensic <laughs> photographer. You should download figure one. Maybe he'd be into that too. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's like that article we saw about the people that uh, have to look at all the porn and yeah. beheadings and, and whatnot in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. You you have to create some sort of mental barrier when you're looking at this stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. so yeah, he's photographing a, a lot of blood. Yeah. 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 Uh, a great little film. Five minutes and fifty five seconds. Uh, you know, don't check Facebook for like two minutes and watch this film and stuff. <laughs> um, we haven't been over at Feature Shoot in a while and I was over there today and I was like, wow, there's, there's a lot of good stuff going on here. We got to look at this stuff. And here was one, portraits of Russian youth who embrace cosplay culture. Well, cosplay is this uh, subculture where people dress up in costumes, often influenced by Japanese anime movies, but it can be also uh, a lot of superheroes. Um, and because things like Comic-Con are so popular nowadays, it's not that unusual to see people kind of dressing up. What I thought was interesting about this was their motivation for doing so. And so if I could scroll down here, and uh, the artist uh, Maria Kosanova says, uh, this generation of Russians were born during the collapse of the Soviet Union, a time when well-organized society and established identity fell apart. This led to a lack of formed identity from the beginning of their young lives, many of whom started to borrow from different cultures. A popular point of reference was the bright, sensational, and superficial world of Japanese pop culture. So interesting. Like their own culture was so devoid of identity that they appropriated a completely different culture and like went with it. <laughs> and loved it. And loved it. And they keep loving it. Cosplay, you know, it's not my thing, but I can see how you can get into it. Um, a lot of the cosplay people actually make their own outfits, at least the top ones. Uh, apparently, there's three people or so in the world who can make a full-time living by being cosplay models. Only three? Yeah. Oh. I mean, a full-time living, you know, they got to be generating. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, guest appearances. I get they get paid like a thousand or two thousand dollars for showing up in a costume. Who, who knows? <laughs> Maybe they make them. A lot of them make them. Yeah. I, and I thought the portraits were lovely. A lot of natural light, nice, nice subjects, nice backgrounds. Yeah, it's, it's, it feels so jarring because the background, you know, it's so Russian. You know, it's like, and yeah, then totally. there are these, yeah, bright poppy, like pink wigs. Pink wig. Got to have the pink wig. <laughs> Got to have the pink wig. Got to have the pink wig, yeah. <laughs> I thought this was, this was also just kind of a lovely photo to kind of start the series with here. The pink wigs. 
the schoolgirl thing, like so it reads so I think it's like Sailor Moon or one of those characters. Right. Yeah. Um, cool stuff. And then we got a uh, email from our buddy Landon Nordeman. How would you describe Landon's photography? Uh, definitely flash. <laughs> he loves the flash. He loves the flash. He usually is shooting. I usually see his work on the cut fashion. So I'm always seeing his fashion stuff up there. And he loves bright colors too. That's his kind of his thing. Flash and bright colors. There's something kind of Martin Parry to the, his eye. Yeah, definitely. Definitely quirky. Yeah, he loves the quirk. Yeah. Well, he, he shoots a lot, as you said, for Fashion Week and whatnot. And here he was shooting, well, talk about cosplay. There's a whole subculture of Star Wars. And, and with Star Wars, the, the new movie's coming out uh, at Christmas time. And so, of course, there's always conventions and whatnot. And he found a bunch of women who dress up uh, in Star Wars gear, but it's all feminized Star Wars stuff. <laughs> so, for example, Darth Vader, but the woman's in leather yeah leather pants um darth vader is a babe darth babe darth babe darth bader baber <laughs> yeah Hot he shot this troopers. for yeah he shot this for vogue which i'm really glad vogue wanted coverage of this i just think that's so cool i you know if you're totally into star wars and you meet a spouse who's totally into it and then you like dress up like that's got to be kind of fun yeah, here a baby is dressed up in Star Wars. Right. Card. <laughs> and you think, okay, now when the baby's like 25, he's going to look back and be like, either my parents were total nerds or they were super cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Um, I really loved, uh, let me find it here. I really loved this photo. It's a stormtrooper in a tutu. On that, point. That's amazing. On point. On in point shoes. It's it's such a it's almost like it's photoshopped like the top and the bottom are like photoshopped, and then and then in the background you got like a guy who's clearly eating too many Fritos um, <laughs> with a bag of Fritos, people hanging out. Another yeah, what are the guys doing? I guess these girls are bringing their boyfriends. <laughs> like come with me to this. The or they just like there. to go to look at like pretty girls. The yeah. other guy's wearing like a Mountain Dew shirt. Clearly he's had too many Mountain Dews. <laughs> Don't drink soda, people. It's not good for you. Good stuff, Landon. We always uh, enjoy your photography. Just keep on sending it to us. Yeah. Uh, lastly, today, a really interesting project here. Uh, we've talked about hipstamatic. We talked about how hipstamatic kind of got hipstamatic was really hip back in the day, and then kind of got overshadowed by uh, Instagram, um, which of course became a billion-dollar uh, company. Uh, hipstamatic did launch a new app called Dispo today. And it's uh, like many of these camera apps that you've seen, you take a bunch of photos and then you don't get to see them until you quote finish the role or whatever. But the interesting thing about this app is you can share it with other people. So everybody contributes to this role of film and then when it's done, you get to see it. Uh, this particular photographer, Luann Dietz, um, got together some better than average photographers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, from all over. Melissa Little, who was uh, at her office the other week. Um, uh, Alyssa Shukar, Scott, Scott Strazanti, Zach Arias, Pete Keyhart. I didn't know he was in the Ukraine. Pete, what's up, man? I haven't seen you in years. <laughs> um, and then here's a selection of the images uh, in chronological order. And just neat to see the eye and 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 this particular project they all shot within a 24 hour period 
So it's kind of this whole day in the life idea through the Dispo app. I love it. I wonder if Dispo contacted them to do this or if they just came up with it on their own. Yeah, who knows? I love the shots that came out of it. Oh, I know. I mean, you know, you get a good photographer with any camera and it's like, oh, man. Yeah. I would love to see, you know, Nat Geo photographers do it, Magnum photographers do it, Seven photographers do it. Yeah, but I mean, I have to argue, like, what's the difference between that, this and like following your favorite Nat Geo photographer on Instagram? No, that's true. Well, I think there's something about the the um, 24-hour period aspect of it. Yeah. And then everybody's kind of, even though there's not a theme per se, everybody's kind of on that same role, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's just my thought. That's true. No, it kind of it kind of makes me think of Snapchat where you're sending images just to like a certain group of people. Yeah. But these ones you get to keep. Neat little project. Um, and then there was there was one other thing that that an acronym that I liked. Uh, and what was it? It was uh, Goya. Get off your ass and shoot. <laughs> Goya. Get off your ass. Um, yeah. Get. Hey. Stop. What are you doing? It's a nice day. There's nice sunlight in New York City. What are you guys doing? Go out, get off your ass and shoot. I know. I'm going to Texas this weekend and I, I want to shoot a little bit. I haven't been back home in a while. So, so uh, Sarah, you know, after this uh, broadcast, I'm going up to the Bronx. I'm driving up to the Bronx and yeah. uh, my friend uh, volunteers at a school up there and it's a bunch of 12-year-old girls <laughs> okay. who she refers to as sassy. Oh, um, no. But... But the, she said, you know, they they have self-esteem issues and they come from like underprivileged neighborhoods. And she said, hey, do you know any photographers who could come up and shoot the girls? And we want to do a little project to help boost their self-esteem. And I, I said, oh, I can, I can do it. And, I, and, you know, I committed to this thing because I'm totally, I'm totally into it. I'm, a li- I'm just a little bit nervous. I think your self-esteem might be down after this shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Who's going to take my photo? I need JR to come boost my self-esteem. I know. What, what gear are you going to bring? Are you going to bring a light set up? I'm going to bring a, a big softbox. I'm going to okay. bring some sort of background. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking pink, but now I'm thinking why do we have to play into the animals? Don't do it. I might bring blue. Yeah, bring the blue. Is it I like a light blue? Yeah, yeah. It's kind yeah. of like a fun, like a colorful, like spring blue. Yeah, that'll be flattering. That'll look good. So uh, if the photos come out at all, maybe I'll show some next week. Oh, that would be great. That would be or great. Or maybe, maybe they'll be terrible and I'll not want to show anyone my photography. <laughs> well, you know what? But I'm Goya. I'm, I'm getting off my ass and I'm shooting today. Good for you. (laughs) Well, have fun in Texas. I look forward to seeing uh, your photos when you get back. Thanks. So for Sarah Jacobs, this is Alan Murabayashi. Thanks for joining us for another episode of I Love Photography. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.